Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. So Gabby, I want to ask you about one of the biggest stories you've covered in your time here at KRQE. And I mean that not only in the terms of magnitude to the community, but also I think continuing coverage. I'm I'm talking about APD and its police reform effort. How have you covered this over the years? Yeah, well, I think the person who knows best is probably you, because both of us were very, very much in the mix as younger reporters in the newsroom. We're thinking like 2014 era, almost a decade. Wow. What really sticks out to me is obviously the coverage amplified after the 2014 shooting of James Boyd. He was a homeless camper in the foothills. After that, you know, the DOJ was very present in Albuquerque. It felt like it was all hands on deck in our newsroom when they ended up publishing their findings. Right. And I just feel like it was a ripple effect over the years of, you know, covering the monitoring reports and then eventually like a criminal case where officers were on trial for that case. And yeah, so there's been a lot of, I guess you could say, ripple effect coverage, continuing coverage since then. Yeah, a lot of chapters, not only in the background of sort of what led up to this, but then also the aftermath um, after the findings, as you talked about um, how APD was affected. So that question, I think, though, is ripe for a jump off point for this week's discussion because of who we're talking to. But before I delve any deeper, in early November, Albuquerque police just this year, 2023, celebrated a big milestone for the department. Roughly nine years into a police reform effort that stemmed from a federal investigation, APD and city leaders now say they are closer than ever to completing the work. It's clearly been a long journey for APD, something that started with the Department of Justice announcing its investigation into Albuquerque police all the way back in November of 2012. By April 2014, the investigation wrapped and the DOJ's Civil Rights Office made a conclusion. They found in part, quote, APD engages in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force, including deadly force, in violation of the Fourth Amendment. So as mentioned, this narrative around APD reform is something both of us covered early in our careers at the station, but it's also something that today's guest has played a big part in over the years as well. While the early years of the APD DOJ settlement agreement played out, there were a lot of local players involved in this discussion that included the work here of New Mexico's U.S. Attorney's Office, aka the Federal Prosecutor's Office for the state of New Mexico. Leading that office starting in 2014 was Damon Martinez as the U.S. Attorney for New Mexico. He left in 2017, but has continued to have a presence here in the state's criminal justice scene and more recently announced another chapter he'll pursue, something we'll get into shortly. But joining us here in the KRQE studio for today's podcast is Damon Martinez. Thanks for being here. Well, good morning and thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I especially uh, appreciate that we can talk in depth today. Yeah. We, we appreciate you joining us here. Thank you. Yeah. Let's start with a little bit of your background. You were born and raised in Albuquerque, finished your undergrad, got a law degree from the University of New Mexico, then moved into politics in the 90s, working with Democratic U.S. senators like Jeff Bingaman and Tom Udall. By 2000 is when it sounds like the wheels started churning in the law part of your career, working in the U.S. District Court in Las Cruces, then Albuquerque 
eventually being appointed to the position of U.S. attorney in New Mexico. Is that is that right? Well, if I could throw in a few other things. Sure. Yeah. So in 1993, I graduated with an MBA degree too. And then I went to work in the Senate for Senator Jeff Bingaman as a legislative assistant. And I really, I did not run for office in the 90s. It was quite later on. I uh, then also worked for uh, then Congressman Tom Udall as his legislative director. In some of that time period, I also served in three different DA's offices before the year 2000. Okay. Wow. So a lot of different roles in the New Mexico criminal justice scene, it seems like. How do you define, though, those early years of your career? I was very fortunate to be mentored by what I consider some of the best. Coming out of school and going to work for Jeff Bingaman, he's a gentleman. He is a public servant that is just top notch. And I learned from him what good government is. And then I had to follow up with then Congressman Tom Udall, and I worked with him in the attorney general's office. And this also is somebody who has the well-being of New Mexico as the first priority. And so I had some great influences early in my career. It sounds like you, you had that sort of duality in your early career of politics and law. Is that how you saw it? Well, I made the distinction. So when I was working in the Senate and in the U.S. House of Representatives, I was separate from the politics. We were working on the, in the government side, so I wasn't necessarily involved in the politics. Now, I did go to work for Senator Bingaman's campaign a couple of times, but it was for very brief periods. So I worked with the policy aspect of it and basically learning how the sausage was made in D.C., So I think we'll get a little bit more into some of the work you've been up to, particularly over the last decade here in Albuquerque in New Mexico. But what are you up to right now? It sounds like as of recent, you've done a lot of work with Albuquerque police and the reform effort that we, of course, started the conversation here with. Absolutely. So that was recently. But at this point, front and center, I am running for district attorney of Bernalillo County. And to be able to do that and to be able to still earn a living I have a private practice, and I'm also working as in-house counsel for a local business. Okay. After 9-11, I joined the Army Reserve, and I just passed 21 years. I am currently the staff judge advocate for the National Guard, which means I run the legal shop for the New Mexico National Guard. Okay. Wow. So if you're a regular listener of the New Mexico News Podcast, you also know we just had another criminal justice leader on our podcast. That is Bernalillo County District Attorney Sam Bregman, who says that he will run to retain his position in the 2024 election. And you, too, recently announced that you'd be running for the position of Bernalillo County's DA next year. What's behind your decision to make you want to jump into that race? So as you just said that I grew up in this community, i I can trace my family back to the 1600s. And this is where I went to school, grade school, high school, college. This is where I met my wife. My sons have grown up in New Mexico. And what I'm seeing right now is that criminals aren't being punished or they're not receiving the punishment that they should according to the crime that was committed. And New Mexicans and here, us in Bernalillo County and Albuquerque are not feeling safe. And I believe that I have the experience to turn this around where we're at. It is just, we're under a cloud right now, a dark cloud of crime and violence, and it's, it's wrong. So I do want to get your take on crime here in Albuquerque. On this podcast, we of course have talked about 
a lot of different elements about crime here in the area. We've talked about juveniles being involved in the situation. We've talked about organized retail crime and recent store closures that we know are somehow linked to that organized retail crime. We've talked about gun violence, just to name a few key issues here. How do you see the problem here? You mentioned this dark cloud, but but maybe a little bit more specifically, how do you see the problem here? And what do you think are the big issues with crime in Albuquerque and how it's being handled? So sitting before you today, I have the experience of, as I just mentioned, serving in three district attorney's offices here in New Mexico. I was also in the attorney general's office of New Mexico. And then I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office for approximately 17 years, and the last three as the U.S. Attorney. Prior to being U.S. Attorney, I supervised the wiretap section, which means that I listen to the cartels. I understand how they operate. I understand how they do business. With that type of background, what I'm seeing right now is that our murders are being pled down to second degree or gun cases, and I can go into specifics if you want. I am seeing that there are fentanyl distributors or dealers who are being given sweetheart deals. So the third priority that is important to me is the district attorney's office has to have somebody in there that is that has the leadership and the experience and the integrity because it's a position of trust. And what's important for that is the community has to be able to trust the word of the individual in there. So I can go into detail right now if you want me to, as far as some, uh, some examples. Yeah. I mean, what are some specific cases that come to mind for you that, you know, have raised the red flag, if you will? Uh, let me start with the murders. When I'm saying that they're being pled down, there's a person by the name of Miguel Gomez. And it's my understanding he shot, killed, and pushed the person out of the car. He was indicted on first-degree murder. He was pled to a gun count. And it's my understanding that he is now eligible to get out of prison in about five and a half years. Let me turn to a sweetheart deal for a fentanyl dealer. There's a person by the name of Thomas Griffin, and he was first charged with 898 fentanyl pills. And as we all know, one fentanyl pill can be deadly. He was then charged a second time with 420 fentanyl pills, over 1,300 fentanyl pills total. He pled to a second-degree felony. And by the time all was said and done, he walked away with one day in jail. You interviewed my opponent. So I listened to that broadcast and you brought up the fact that, you know, he had said that he was not going to run. The reason that's important is because you need someone who can dedicate full time to the office. And let's see, we're in November. This is month 11. That means that in addition to trying to run the DA's office, he's also running a full time campaign. And you view that as... It's distracting. Okay. So some of the work that you've done over the past decade, you became the U.S. attorney in New Mexico around 2013, 2014. Aside from working on the APD reforms, it sounds like you focused on a lot of issues related to Indian country and UNM, right? Absolutely, yes. How do you summarize your time working as the top federal prosecutor in New Mexico? Are there any career highlights that you look back on there? Yes, One of the things that I'm very proud of is the reform that occurred at UNM. I'll tell you how that started was I became aware of a personal story where a friend's daughter had been involved in basically sexual assault. And I asked 
the Civil Rights Division, as U.S. Attorney under President Obama, I asked the Civil Rights Division to come in and help look at this matter with the U.S. Attorney's Office here. And we looked at it, and we found out that there were systemic problems at the University of New Mexico concerning how sexual assault was being dealt with. The administration, faculty, students didn't know, basically, they didn't have the guidance that they needed. And so let me give you an example of what was going on then. This one woman who was being harassed, she's being harassed in class, she's being harassed at the dorm, she's being harassed at LAPO. And something as simple as when she was asking the faculty to let her take a test somewhere else, they weren't accommodating her. So we did an entire systemic investigation there at the university, and we changed the system how they dealt with sexual assault. As far as Indian country, I'm very proud of our record there. Let me just give a couple of examples. There was a shield that is sacred to the Acoma Pueblo, and it was stolen in the early 70s, and there was an auction house in France that was going to sell it. And when we found out about this, we took criminal action. And as a result, we put that auction on hold. And it's my understanding that Acoma eventually got that, that shield back. Let me give you one last example on this. Is when I first became U.S. attorney, there were five tribes that were negotiating with the state on their uh, gaming compacts. And one tribe, Powaki, was having difficulty with then Governor Martinez's administration. And I believe that they needed their day in court. And so when they weren't able to get to a resolution with the state, we, in essence, created a trust fund for that money to go into to be safeguarded. But we were able to give the Powaki their, their day in court. And this is one of the priorities as the U.S. attorney was to respect the sovereignty of the various tribes and pueblos. And I believe that that's an example of, you know, what we did during my time period. It sounds like the work is been really personal to you. It is. I grew up here and uh, my family's from here. We know that in your time as the U.S. attorney for New Mexico, you had some very close work with Albuquerque police. We were talking about it at the top of the episode, particularly surrounding the settlement agreement on police reform. Now, again, that settlement agreement was reached in 2014, following a roughly year long investigation into basically how APD was doing its job between 2012 and 2013. That investigation came at a time when APD was under the microscope in the media, amongst community members and community leaders surrounding the issue of use of force, particularly as it related to several deadly police shootings that we and various other uh, media outlets here in Albuquerque reported on. Back when the DOJ investigation was happening in 2014, can you tell us what was your impression of the work that APD was doing at the time? And what was your impression of what DOJ was trying to determine? How much time do we have? <laughs> so the shorter um, answer, I suppose, yeah. All right. So let me first address my impression was I had just come off, and this is very personal again. I had just come off of deployment in Sinai in 12. And so I was the, the lone attorney, the JAG officer for 470 Mexicans. So it was my job to teach and brief on policy and training. And so I was very, very sensitive to that. So to answer your question, when the investigation came out and we found we, we had those findings, what was clear to me was that APD needed better policy, better training, and better implementation 
because we have a police force that deserve the best. And we needed them to have, again, the best training and standards to live, live up to. And the investigation came out and said that, you know, especially in use of force incidences concerning deadly shootings, that wasn't occurring. I mean, and in, in you had a chance to meet with some of the people that were affected by this. I mean, these are probably very emotional conversations that you were having with some of the families that were affected by use of force cases that APD was overseeing or had been involved in rather, I should say. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, uh, we tried to get out in the community as much as possible to talk to all of the stakeholders. And it was very, it was amazing the amount of folks we talked to. As you're asking that question, I'm thinking about there were some individuals who were actually from one of the Pueblos who were homeless and living about San Mateo and Central. And we talked to them to see how they were interacting with the police. We spoke to police families about how they were being supported. One of the main coalitions at that time was APD Forward, which was made up of a number of groups. And someone who is, I will always think fondly of these people on how they were trying to turn a very tragic situation into something positive was the Torres family. Their son was shot in the backyard of their home. Right, Christopher Torres. Yes, yes. And the parents were trying to do nothing but positive. How do we go forward? How do we change things in a positive way? And yes, to answer your question, we spoke to so many people to try to formulate how do we build that trust in the community again with our police department. The DOJ's investigation ultimately led leaders from Washington announcing their findings in April of 2014. As we mentioned, the DOJ found APD had, quote, serious constitutional problems in how officers were conducting their jobs at the time. You said, quote, the coming days and months will determine what the next generation of policing will look like in our city. And you also added at the time, We are at a unique time and place where the city can decisively determine the culture of the Albuquerque Police Department and its relationship with the community it serves. So APD now is at a point nine years after those remarks where they say they're at 94% operational compliance with reform efforts. What do you make of where APD is at now and how long it's taken to get to this point? Okay, so just to be clear, over the past years, I've been working at APD, but I did not work on the consent decree because I could not, I was walled off. As an attorney, you can't jump sides of an issue. So I've been walled off from that. To answer your question, I wish the reform had come quicker. When we wrote out the consent decree, it was to be over a four-year time period. And I really think that had the policy been put in place at the beginning, the training would have followed and implementation would follow. So I wish it had been done a lot quicker. With that said, our community has a lot to be proud of because the culture has been changed. Our officers have the training that is incredible and the implementation is obviously there's there's growing pains there, but our police force is a lot better than it was in 2014. In what way, I would ask you, um, you know, as, as a community leader, as somebody who's been very intimately involved, just what way do you see as APD better? I know you talked about they needed better training, they needed better policy, better implementation. Is it those factors? In what way do you see APD as sort of improved? Let me give you an example of something I've been working on. 
you talk about community policing. What is community policing? So over the past years, when I was working at APD, I was working on something called the Downtown Echo. It's the very first of its kind, a public safety echo. And this is a, an initiative where the community comes together and they discuss issues. And a police officer leads the discussion there, an Albuquerque police officer. And so the community gets to interact with that police officer and see that that police officer is human and doesn't have all the answers. And it builds community support together. It's an all-teach, all-learn environment. You mentioned feeling positive, I, I suppose, about APD's future. Do you think that they can sustain it with the changes that they've made? Well, yes. Yes, I do. So over the past years, one of the things that, it, that I think is really important to understand for the community who's listening is that APD is doing a heck of a lot with very few resources. And this last year, I served as the co-chair of the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council with, with Judge Leos. And this is where everybody comes together, the public defender's office, DA's office, the county, the city, sheriff's office, and we all work together towards things. And so I can guarantee you that APD is there at the table. They're doing what needs to be done. And the trust that I was talking about in 2014 that wasn't there, it's coming back. People believe in their officers, they support their officers, and they understand that there's not enough officers out there but that APD is trying to do what it can. So at some point in 2017, as President Trump took office, you did leave the U.S. Attorney's Office. You made a bid for the Albuquerque-based Congressional District 1 seat against Deb Holland, but as we know, Holland won that primary race. Eventually, though, it sounds like, as you mentioned, you jumped back into the position of working in context of the APD DOJ reforms, but this time it was working with the city of Albuquerque, on those reform efforts, as I understand you were a senior policy analyst, now working kind of on the other side, as they say, but you were walled off, as, as you'd mentioned. So I wanted to ask you, what did that work look like? What did a senior policy analyst such as yourself do? What was the goal? What did you do? Sure. There were things during that time period that I'm very proud of. One of the issues that came up was the Metro Crime Initiative. And this was through the mayor, through the APD, where over a three-year period, I was part of working with the other county, the uh, DA's office, the public defenders, the courts, in putting together what does our criminal justice system need. And it was an all-hands approach to how do we work together to try to fix our system. One of, I can give you a couple uh, things that I think are important to our community. So during that time period, we had a violence intervention program locally, and I worked on the legislation and testified as a subject matter expert on getting a violence intervention program statewide. This is early intervention when there's, when there's for example, gun violence. And this is something that can make a difference where you're avoiding those crimes from occurring, hopefully by anticipating them and going talking to folks and diverting them towards something better than getting involved in crime. A couple of other things during that time period with the Metro Crime Initiative was I also worked on help drafting legislation and uh, testifying as an expert for the Chop Shop Bill as far as uh, making sure the district attorney's office has a tool to prosecute car thefts. I mean, you know, that passed and was signed into law. Oh, this became, yes, what I'm talking to you about are things that became law. Yeah. I could talk to you about things that didn't pass, but that may take a little bit longer. <laughs> I get you. Um, a couple other things that I think are important 
is the organized retail crime bill that passed this last year. I was one of the witnesses, one of the experts on that, and I was part of helping to make recommendations drafting on that bill. And the goal there was to give uh, the district attorney's office a way to prosecute those crimes. Also, uh, something else is I served as a subject matter expert, which means I testified before the various committees up at the legislature and helped with the drafting on the Safe Storage Act so that we could safeguard our weapons, our guns. And that was with uh, Representative Pamela Herndon. So during my past years working for the city, working for APD, that's some of the stuff that I worked on. Do you still track those independent monitor reports and that detail how APD is progressing through police reforms? And what do you see is still left to be done? Candidly, I don't, I don't track them as when years as much ago, as, you used yeah, to, as yeah. much as I used to, but it sounds like there's very few things left to be done. I think there was like 270 some Paragraphs. paragraphs, yes, yeah. paragraphs to work on. And I would just say at this point, I just hope that the remaining time to finish off that, what, 5 6% occurs soon so that the police department can, you know, just go forward. Yeah, be done with that chapter. We talked about the sustainability of APD and its reform effort, because what does this all mean, right, if they, if they end up going back to the way things were? where we know there was a lot of heartache, there was a lot of strife in the community about how the police department conducted its job. You know, somebody who has had intimate knowledge of the process, not sure if you caught the news conference that happened yesterday, but, you know, APD is sort of projecting, it may even be the next monitor's report that we may be at that 95% operational compliance, which means we've proven over a sustained period of time that we're doing what we said we're doing. Do you have a projection on when you think APD might complete this work? I'm sorry, I don't. I That would need internal information, and I just don't, I didn't have access to that in my old job, and I don't have that information available. But even not knowing that, I guess another way to phrase that question, too, is like, what makes you confident that we won't go backwards sure. once they do reach compliance? Well, what makes me confident is I go back to, I believe that APD has good policy and I truly believe in their training. And this is me knowing the individuals who are implementing these within the police department. And I think that there's things in place to prevent that. But ultimately the answer is the culture. As we were saying earlier, the culture has changed and I'm positive that that culture is going to continue in this police department. You have new ways of doing policing, and I believe that it's not only safer for the community, but safer for the police themselves. Yeah, that's a big deal. Changing the culture was, that was a phrase that we were talking about, again, almost a decade ago. I remember so many of our stories centered around that very topic, changing the culture, because yeah, culture really can permeate over a long period of time. And no matter the rules that you set in place, it can have a a really big effect on just how people conduct their job. Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, just as journalists, you know, and we also live in the community, you you do see a difference in how, yeah, how people interact with the homeless, how law enforcement interacts with the population and with this issue. But also you left APD and the work with the city at some point and moved into another realm of private practice. Can you tell us about that, some of the work that you're doing there? Sure. So when I left the city, I think I had been practicing for a very short time period and 
thankfully the stars, the calls started coming in. And one of the cases that in fact, I'm grateful for that was uh, profiled here on the news, I guess a couple of weeks ago was there was a home that exploded in Knob Hill and that was wild. Yeah. It doesn't even seem real, but what, what shows you that there's a blessing involved in this is the Wilson family who I'm representing them. I'm, I'm also representing three other homeowners on the street is the Wilson family. The two daughters were in the house when the home exploded and for the grace of God, they both lived and thankfully they were able to walk out of that, that explosion. So that's a type of practice that I have right now. And let me just say, I'm not having any boring days. Yeah, that was a natural (laughs) gas related, right? Yes. Okay. What makes you want to keep up the fight here in public office and sort of work in the realm of criminal justice at that level of public office? Because if I'm looking at your career, you know, you've worked in federal legislative efforts. You mentioned work with Tom Udall, with Senator Bingaman. You know, you did a lot of work reforming a police department. You were the top prosecutor for the feds essentially here in New Mexico. Now you're, you know, as you mentioned, working in a realm of representing a family that's had a house explosion related to natural gas. There's a lot of different things that you've worked on in your career. But here you are at this position where, you know, you're, again, putting your name out there, wanting to be a district attorney representative of Bernalillo County, which we know obviously has an immense volume of criminal cases. And it's a it's a pretty specific job that you're dealing with. Point being the long winded question, what makes you want to keep doing work in public office? Well, you asked earlier that this is personal and it is personal. My dad worked in the DA's office for Al Cerise. And so my very first memory of a lawyer was my dad in front of the jury box arguing a murder case. So I've paid attention to the DA's office and it's important to me. With that said, I've run a prosecutor's office as President Obama's U.S. attorney. And what I'm seeing occurring right now, I believe I can make a difference. And I know how to make that difference. I believe in the prosecutors. I believe in all of the staff at the DA's office, but they have to have the right guidance. And, you know, I've known my my opponent, I should say the DA, I've known him since the 90s. I believe he's a very nice man, but I truly believe that we have different ways of conducting business. And there's a number of ways that I think I can distinguish myself from how he is running his office right now. But our community lives in fear right now. We deserve better. We deserve justice. And violent crime has us worrying for our families if we go to a baseball game, if we drive on the street, even at home. And we need to turn this around. Our community deserves better. And I can be part of that answer. What do you think that Albuquerque needs to focus on the most when addressing criminal justice? Is it tougher laws, more prosecutors, an issue with judges? How do you view that? All right. If you could give me like your top wish list. So much of it starts in the DA's office or the prosecutor's office. So you hear a lot of conversation about arresting. But what I'm asking you to also consider is the other side of the case. What is the sentence? Right now, as I think I said in the beginning, there are a lot of people who are, a lot of criminals who are not being punished 
or who are not receiving the punishment that they deserve for the crime that was committed. So let me first address the pretrial. Pretrial is a huge issue. Under the New Mexico Constitution, the prosecutor's office has to file the motion to detain for the court to consider detention. I'm not saying, you know, detain everybody, but I would be looking seriously at filing more detention motions concerning violent crime, murders, and property crime. On the other side of it, this is where the sentences could come in. There's a lot of plea deals that occur, and there's certain things you don't plead down, is if you have gun charges, for example, where someone has been brandishing a firearm. If it's charged, you go forward with that charge. You do not drop that as part of the plea agreement and ultimately let someone out sooner than that they should be getting out. There's also another case, um, a woman by the name of Mariana King, who had over 870 fentanyl pills, I believe. And when all was said and done, her case was pled down to a criminal trespass. And uh, I believe that she served two days in jail when all was said and done. My point is, is when something is seriously charged, you hold them accountable for that charge. You don't plead it down. Does some of that, how you feel needs to happen in the state court system. Is some of that informed through your work in the federal system where we do see a lot more people get detained while awaiting trial. And we do see not quite as many um, deals cut in the same way as we do in state systems. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office for, let me say, approximately five years. And then I came up here and I worked wiretap cases against the cartels. And then I also did national security cases uh, during my time period before I became supervisor of the wiretap section. And so over that time period, and then time serving in the DA's offices and in the attorney general's office in New Mexico, all of that was formative on me on ways to prosecute. And so ultimately, I have over 20 years prosecutorial experience. Is there anything else that we didn't ask you about that you wanted to add? One of the things that is important in a position of trust, and I kind of touched on this earlier, is an elected official or someone given responsibility, you have to trust when they say something. And that is very important. Having been in the, you know, as I told you, I joined up after 9-11. I'm currently a colonel in the New Mexico National Guard. And I told you that, you know, I'm the staff judge advocate for the state. Something that is important when you're given a position of trust is honor and integrity. And I'm going forward in this office believing that I have the record that has established when I've, when I've said something, I've tried to follow through on that. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is this fentanyl issue is crucial and absolutely vital to our community. We're currently in a crisis. Two points here is, like I said, I've prosecuted and listened to the cartels. And when someone gets a day in jail with 1,300 fentanyl pills, you know, it walks away with a day in jail. What is that telling the cartels? And so that's how I know from my experience, getting back to your question, that's how I know how to prosecute is you hit them where it hurts. The second part of this and what I'm going to do different is I'm not going to just look at these overdose deaths as overdose deaths. I'm going to go after, if it's provable, who pushed those pills to our kids, to our family members. I'm going to prosecute them for murder. Damon Martinez, thank you for your time. 
Again, I'm grateful for giving me this time to elaborate and to talk in depth. Thank you. Again, a special thanks to our guest here this week, Damon Martinez, for joining us. Uh, Hopefully that was an interesting behind the scenes look at some of the work he did as it relates to APD's settlement agreement and reform efforts. And just as a reminder, we do have an interview with his opponent, Sam Bregman, that aired just a couple weeks before this one. It's in the feed. You should check that out here as well for perspective. Yes. And if you have a podcast idea or someone you'd like to hear from on our podcast, feel free to reach out. I'm Gabrielle.Burkhardt at KRQE.com via email and GBurkNM on social media. And I'm Chris.McKee at KRQE.com. Also at Chris McKee TV. Thanks for listening.